This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time to talk politics. And of course, top of mind is the fallout from John Tory's surprise resignation. We know that he is staying on to get his budget through and he has strong mayor powers that will allow him to stick handle that. But there's still a $933 million hole in the city's budget, money he has said he intends to get from senior levels of government. Now, his ability to negotiate with them and crowbar the cash that the city needs has been one of his assets. But now he is, quite frankly, a wounded lame duck. And even if he takes on the task, would he be as effective? And if not, who will? be doing that and what are their chances. The numbers to call 416-360-0740 toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now, the recovering politicians panel. And now I'm joined by George Smitherman, former Ontario Liberal MPP for Toronto Centre, as well as former Health Minister and Deputy Premier, Janet Ecker, former Ontario PC MPP, Senior Cabinet Minister, uh, including Finance Minister, in uh, the governments of Mike Harris and Ernie Eves, and Peggy Nash, who is a former NDP MP for Parkdale High Park. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hey. Good day. I'm uh, especially, I must say, interested to hear your take on uh, the resignation of John Tory. Um, One of the things that I've been hearing since then, so there are some people say, ooh, they were very surprised that he resigned, and maybe that means there's like more shoes to drop, and other people saying, well, he shouldn't have resigned. So uh, what's your take on that? Let's begin with George. Oh, I think uh, the matter of whether the situation was so severe to dictate that he resign is not is a moot point as far as I'm concerned. He knows that he had to, uh, and that's really what matters in the circumstance. And I would say with respect to the shoes that have to be filled or the budget gap uh, more precisely, that now is not the time for on-the-job training. <laughs> that's a, that's an interesting take, Janet. Um, what's your view for? So, first of all, I, I'm assuming that you were surprised, like the rest of us, or were you not? Yeah, no, I, I think for most most of us, anyway. I mean, obviously, he'd reached out to some some intimate advisors and stuff, as he should have when when the issue started to arise. But first of all, it's a very tragic, sad thing. Uh, second, because you know, secondly, John is a the kind of politician in many ways that we all wish we had more of. Um, he really cares about the job, who put in the hours, who, you know, tried to make the best decisions. I mean, he was incredibly well motivated. I mean, he didn't need all this flack, etc. So we've lost somebody who, you know, there, we need more people like John in politics. So, I mean, that's 
you know, leads to the tragedy as well as the personal side of it for him and his family and, and the young woman involved. But unfortunately, I don't think he had any choice but to resign. I mean, you can talk about how, you know, whether he should have announced he was going to stay till after the budget out of the gate or something. I mean, you can pick apart the details, but you can't be out there with the image that is authentic, or at least one authentic, of him as the straight-laced, you know, common sense, down-to-earth, integrity, accountability, all of that stuff that was his brand and was so important to his brand, and then, you know, make a, an error in judgment like this, right? And and he didn't, I don't think he had a choice in the long, and even you can see now with the budget stuff, and I, I can understand why he's wanting to stay on for the budget, quite frankly, um, but you can just see it's getting messier and messier every day, and there's just no easy out on this. So your heart kind of goes out to all of them. I mean, we're all capable of making errors in judgment from time to time, um, and this one, is, this was a big one. Peggy Nash. <laughs> well, you know, it is ironic that um, John Tory campaigned after the the craziness of Rob Ford that he would bring kind of normalcy to. The mayor's office, and, and he did we find our. Pardon me. He did. He did, and so we find ourselves in this unprecedented, chaotic situation where, because of Doug Ford's new strong mayor powers that the mayor has, um, we really don't have a clear path forward. So, um, it, you know, I think in the post Me Too era, uh, John Tory clearly transgressed. It's not acceptable that a woman who depends on you for her job uh, is um, is a person you're having that kind of personal relationship with. And, you know, people say, well, he did the ethical thing, but I don't agree. He did the ethical thing when he was outed by the Toronto Star. And um, I feel badly for this young woman who now has left her job in the mayor's office and is working someplace else. I hope she's able to maintain her privacy. Um, Yeah, the mayor made a colossal mistake. He needs to be accountable for it, not just when he's exposed. He shouldn't have run for re-election, quite frankly, knowing that this could blow up. And I think it's sad for the city that we're now put in this turmoil and that we have to go through the expense of another election for mayor when the budget, as you quite rightly point out, Libby, is so tight. We're, we're scrounging for cash wherever we can get it. And, uh, you know, and, and there are those who would disagree on the priorities of the mayor and the money he's spending on those priorities. Oh, yeah. uh, and so I think that's something that we can have a debate about now. Well, um, uh, a couple of things I, I want to uh, run by the others that, that Peggy um, uh, put up. So uh, I would agree there are very good reasons uh, not to have workplace relationships because when they blow up, it can wreck the work. But one of the things that I have to say bothers me a little bit is when, uh, you know, um, the the woman is always painted as a victim in this. I mean, she's going to suffer, obviously, because it's come out, but uh, that somehow the woman is coerced into this because of a power imbalance. I mean, I would assume that the woman wanted it as much. And, you know, I remember uh, 
many years ago when I was young, I mean, people who did something, uh, say, inappropriate or not right, I mean, knew exactly what they're doing. And somehow I think that uh, a lot of this kind of takes agency away from women. Janet? Um, well, the, and the challenge, I mean, I can understand where you're coming from uh, because, um, uh, you know, I mean, you do ask yourself that question too. Is there not some responsibility for the other person? However, we don't know if the power imbalance relationship was really interfering, you know, in influencing the judgment. That's the problem with these issues and why people, HR consultants say, don't do it because it just is no way. I mean, if he had, and, and they have policies and companies and that, that if, yeah. if you do start having a relationship with someone like you disclose to HR, they make sure, I mean, this is being a large organization, that the person is not in any, you know, the, the, the couple are not sort of in a, a situation where one has power over the other. Um, you know, but in this case, how would you do that? I mean, she worked for the mayor in a legitimate job, and I'm assuming did a, a good job. Um, yeah, that's why they say no, because it's just too easy for a power imbalance to have actually influenced either him or her in the judgment that they had on this thing. Well, apparently she left quite a while ago, according to the timeline that I saw, that she left in 2021. Well, the timelines, yeah. that's the other thing here. The Integrity Commissioner is taking a look at this because I've, he also talked about the dates about earlier this year. And stuff. So didn't break I've up. Seen, and then. again, neither one of us are, you know, we're not on the inside yeah. on this, but in the media anyway, I've seen different dates. So I think the integrity commissioner, just to keep, keep it clean, I think needs, as he is doing, to take a look at it and just make sure that the facts are the facts and nothing. And this woman was not, I mean, I, I mean, listen, we all know John. Um, I, I respect John immensely. I would be, I mean, there's no way that he, you know, did anything inappropriate, if you will, in terms of the power imbalance, I wouldn't think. But, you need to check that stuff out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the other things, I mean, uh, again, Peggy uh, took issue with this, that he did quote the right thing by resigning. I mean, that's a uh, kind of older fashioned values, um, uh, you know, where if, if especially politicians really messed up, they took responsibility and resigned. You don't see that much. And I have to sort of compare I and contrast you have Michael Thompson, who has been charged with rape. And of course, he's innocent until proven guilty. But both the police and prosecutors found enough to charge him and not even with one of these whatever lower uh, counts of, of uh, sexual assault. And he just brazens it out. And uh, every time I'm on Instagram, I see pictures of him posing with all kinds of people. And uh, even, you know, with issues that just relate to competence, I don't see much of a taking of responsibility uh, among the political class, George. Well, that's well, what makes him so special. Can I, Sorry, hey, John. can I get a word in here? Sure. Yes. Listen, uh, listen usually, usually I'm hogging all the time. Hey, uh, what I would say is that on the integrity uh, scale, we know where Michael Thompson is in relation, let's say, to John Tory. That's <laughs> clarified. I think all the questions that we just got into uh, on excellent points that were made by, uh, by uh, Peggy and by Janet, largely I agreed with everything that was said, uh, is all these nagging questions around timeline and such. 
can you imagine the press conferences that the mayor was going to face down if he actually tried to hang on to this? It's not a place where you can hide or escape from the daily entourage of the media just because of the way the mayor's office is built, as Rob Ford found out. So, you know, I think this really actually demonstrates why it would have been untenable for him to go forward. Well, uh, except that, you know, when I first saw that he was uh, staying on to deal with the budget, I thought, okay, maybe it's this week, but it could take a month. Uh, so how is he, is he going to avoid this for, for uh, a month? Well, he's going to park, he's going to park this with the integrity commissioner who's certainly not going to finish up a report in a month, I would expect. It's not going to be easy, but he will have, you know, uh, I'm sure he's going to rely upon that heavily. I think we're all very surprised to see the implications in the context of the budget process. And, you know, for me, that makes fascinating how that budget is going to play out and which councillors get hung on what side of it and what that contributes to their wherewithal to run for mayor. Right. Well, I mean, uh, yesterday I was talking to three councillors, and I think it's pretty clear that those on on the left are going to try to push amendments to the budget. Uh, but, Janet, the bottom line is that he can veto all of them. Yeah, yeah. this is one of those wonderful, unprecedented situations, and, and I uh, agree with the uh, uh, George's comment about where people, you know, people's perception of people's ethics, right, is, is really important. And John, who had such a, a clean brand, um, you know, it, you can't really say, oh, well, because no other politician takes takes the responsible thing. I won't either. Um, but uh, I, it's a tough one. I mean, that budget, I think the, the left side of council, if I can call them that, I think did a disservice by coming out the door right away saying, oh, good, we can change the budget. We can screw it all around kind of thing, right? Well, a process had been followed that established a budget that's going to council, and obviously council has to decide and make a decision. So I think that's where a lot of people were just like, oh, my heavens, we have to keep John around until we get that done because only he can manage that, right? So it, it is an impossible situation, really, for everybody, for the city, for, for John. What do you do? It's not he that can manage it. It's only that undemocratic wielding yeah. power that he can use that can manage it. And that's not, you know, that's going to put that in a very sharp focus, and also his veto power. That just invites me as a politician to throw up resolutions and let him have at them. I mean, it's <laughs> going to be a very, very, uh, it's going to be a very wild show. The budget yeah. always has amendments, though, so let's not make it sound like people proposing amendments for the budget is anything revolutionary. That's always yeah. part and parcel of the process right up to the last minute. And usually there are a few amendments that make it through, if I recall well. well. George makes a good point that normally in the budget process, you do have discussion, debate. The job of councillors is, in fact, to represent their communities and represent the interests of their communities. And it is unprecedented, the situation we're in right now, where the province has given the mayor veto power over all of that councillor decision-making or input, and this is truly the mayor's budget, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I don't know whether after announcing his resignation, he went, whoops, I actually have to get this budget passed, or what happened. But I don't agree that he's just going to push this uh, his behavior off to the ethics commissioner because, I mean, he took international trips 
with this staff person, that's public dollars. Was that value for money? Were these personal trips? I think there's going to be an investigation, or at least there should be, into that. And I also think that there needs to be uh, a review of of what it is the mayor is proposing. I'm not convinced this is just going to go sailing through council like a knife through butter. And if the mayor tries to impose uh, the budget on city council, I think the councillors would be well within their right to say, wait a minute, you have no legitimacy. You have said you are resigning, and yet you are going to impose the future on the city of well, Toronto. I, I, we'll I think people may have may have something to say about that. Oh, I'm sure yeah, they'll have a look. We don't know, Peggy. I mean, you're absolutely right. But we, we, you know, the moral authority here. But we don't know that he's going to force it. I mean, you no, know, he we may don't. well be doing we what. Don't. And as George said, the normal process is for give and take at the council table. John may well be planning on doing that. Well, we're, we're in uncharted we're, waters because of the strong mayor powers that Doug Ford has, has imposed, really, on the cities of Toronto and Ottawa. Well, we're he, in we're in uncharted territory here. He uh, he actually made a point of asking for those powers and didn't disclose that he was asking for them uh, during the campaign. But Janet, one, one thing I, uh, is there someone else there? I mean, in terms of, of uh, plugging that almost billion dollar hole, who, who is going to negotiate with Doug Ford and with Justin Trudeau? Like who has, uh, who do you think, who, who would you like to see doing that? Oh, well, guy, I don't want to tread into that territory, but I mean, if John, uh, I mean, obviously, if John is staying, I mean, he might well decide to do that, and the governments might well agree to give him more, depending on whatever the deal is. But I think, too, if I was the Prime Minister or the Premier, um, I would be a little nervous about doing a deal with John and then having him leave, because who, you know, if a new mayor comes in, who's going to you know, is, is the new mayor going to live by that agreement or not live by that agreement kind of thing, right? It's putting everybody in a really challenging position. So I think technically, if John's stepping out, the deputy mayor is the person who, who leads the council. She's stepping in to be the acting mayor. So she would have to be the one that would carry that forward. Uh, George? I think what, well, go ahead. Uh, Janet's a former finance minister, so she's a, that's a great take on this. I mean, I don't really see this situation leading the province and the federal government to move more quickly to deal with this, more more perhaps likely to give them a chance to see what's you know, see where the dust settles and see what or whom is coming next. But I don't know the state of negotiations that might have been going on. Isn't part of the deficit hang up from last year even? So I'm not really sure that John is going to be in a more powerful position to trigger those payments in the month or so that, you know, might uh, go down here. But I'm, I'm George, do you see any, I mean, um, Jennifer McKelvey, I don't know if she knows uh, Trudeau and Doug Ford, and I'm assuming to a certain extent those relationships do matter. I mean, yesterday I was talking to the only declared candidate, Gil Penulosa, and he doesn't know either of them. I mean, just when you look uh, at at uh, that crew, do you see anybody that you think uh, would be up to that task? Personally, this was my point at the beginning about not the time for on-the-job training. It's not just if you've ever shaken Doug Ford's hand or if you know Justin Trudeau. It's if you know the layers of officials in their offices and beneath 
that are key to triggering any significant move like this. So you really, really run the risk of ending up with somebody, even on an interim basis, whose network is really not up necessarily to the task at hand. I think that's a real risk and that people might, might need to look at a good bit of continuity at the political staff level, even if they don't exact, you know, even yeah. if they wish to put their own imprint on things. Well, yeah, that would make sense. I would think that they would keep the people who've been in the loop on this so far, and I would assume those people would like to keep their jobs as long as possible. I mean, that's where a lot of the action is, if we're honest about things. You know, the politicians having relationships and a phone call that can be answered, that's huge also. But on the day-to-day, moving forward, the half-billion-dollar file takes a lot of plugging. Hmm. Yeah, I will just say, on the other hand, whoever wins the mayoralty of the city of Toronto, the biggest individual election in our entire country, that person will have a lot of political capital. And I, I think there is real pent-up demand in the city of Toronto, frustration about the direction of things. Um, and it didn't show up in the last municipal election because I think people assumed rightly that uh, Mr. Tory was going to cruise to re-election. And I want to say again how sad it is that he didn't decide to have this, um, you know, ethical conversion on the road to Damascus, as it were, uh, before the last election, when we could have had uh, a, a fresh candidates and a fresh voice and someone who had been through that election. Uh, but whoever it is, I think there is a hangover from COVID where it is incumbent on both the province and the feds to help out the largest city in the country to get through uh, and manage its budget, because remember, there are things in this budget that the mayor is responsible for. For example, the renovation of the Gardner, uh, the bigger police budget, things that, that have been contentious, that uh, if if the mayor insists that these are going to continue, I think that, uh, you know, the big question will be, well, how do you pay for it? If we don't have the money, and I, I think that's something that city council will likely debate okay. before the mayor imposes this budget. Um, I'm going to take a couple of very quick calls before we wrap things up. We've got Tony in Keswick. Hi, Tony. Tony, are you there? Uh, hello. Hello. Go ahead. Uh, yes, I just want to, one more politician comes out when he knows he's about to get out by the media and comes out and tries to make it look like... Uh, he did the right thing, which is obviously, you know, and now the other, the other thing is, is that as soon as he comes out and he, and, and he resigns, that should be it. He should not be able to come in and put his last two cents worth in and then leave. He should be gone from the, from the moment he resigns, he should be out. Hmm. Simple as that. And I'm tired of politics and politicians playing these games. You're out. You resign. You did something wrong. You broke up a family, your family plus the other ladies, and she's half your age. You know, that's about it. Okay, thanks, Tony. Uh, very point. quick comment from Daryl. Hi, Daryl. Hi, how you doing? I kind of disagree with Tony. Um, firstly, I don't, I don't buy the, you know, the, the victim status as he said uh, 
about the woman. I mean, 29, 30 years old is not a young woman. It's an adult. They know what they're doing. So Tory basically did the right thing, offering his resignation. It doesn't mean we have to accept it. He made a commitment to the city by running in the last election, and he's probably the best person to, to be in the position. And it may be tough for him with all the political sharks out there trying to feed off it, but I think it's something where, as I say, as, as a citizen of the city, I don't accept his resignation. Okay, thanks for that. I am looking at the clock, and we are definitely out of time, and I bet that we will be talking about this long after today. It's been a really fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, George Smitherman, Peggy Nash, and Janet Ecker. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We are going to take a break, and when we come back, speaking of the city's budget, we're going to talk to the budget chief, Gary Crawford, when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Throughout the pandemic, we have heard from long-term care homes about their increasing dependence on temporary... Oh, sorry. I'm reading the wrong throw. Um... That's coming up after the next break. The budget process in Toronto is going ahead as planned starting tomorrow, though, of course, nothing is really the same. And here with his perspective on the questions that we've been asking, Toronto City Councillor and Budget Chief Gary Crawford. Gary, thank you so much for being with us. And listen, Libby, thank you very much for having me. Okay, so first of all, Without getting into the weeds, can you very briefly explain how this budget process is, it makes it more of John Tory's budget as opposed to the ones that we had before strong mayor powers? Yeah, very simply and quickly, um, the provincial legislature um, created what we call the strong mayor powers, and that gives uh, the mayor the ability to, not ability, but it tells him that this is his budget. Uh, he presents a budget to City Council, um, which he announced a couple of weeks ago. So this will be coming formally to City Council tomorrow. Uh, City Council will have an opportunity to debate it, to talk about it like we've done any other year. Um, and then there'll be an opportunity to make any kind of amendments or changes to the budget. What is different in years past? Where in years past, City Council would, at the end of the process and end of the day, with the debate, we would support or not the budget. We always do support it. Um, what's different now is the budget just gets passed after we're done. If there are any amendments or changes, um, I'll use one good example. Um, you know, people have suggested that we maybe reduce the police budget by $50 million. Um, something John Tory doesn't support, I don't support. So say that gets moved tomorrow and it passes. John will now, or the mayor, John or whoever's the mayor, will have the ability to veto that decision, which means um, he doesn't like it. He can veto that. That's part of the strong mayor powers. City Council, and after that, will have about 10 days, 12 days to be able to determine whether or not they accept the veto or if they have two-thirds of a vote, they can change that. So that's kind of very quickly how things have changed as to where Council would always support a budget in the past or not. Um, it's really, you now this budget before us is the mayor's budget, uh, and I'm pleased that John Tory will be there tomorrow. This is He's been working hard on this all year, as I have, and uh, he'll be presenting this budget before Council tomorrow afternoon, or tomorrow morning, actually. So it's not just... Tomorrow, I mean, I gather that the process can take, you know, up to a month. It can. And again, that gets back to if there are amendments to the budget that the mayor does not 
accept or does not like, he can veto them, which means he can take them out of the budget. That will take, you know, he has two days to decide that. He can veto something. And then council has another 12 days to determine whether or not they want to reverse that veto. And the only way that they can reverse that is a two-thirds voted council. So we'll have to have uh, another special council meeting within, you know, I think I think it's to 12 days, and then which will extend, which, which will extend the budget. But then we will make a determination. We don't get two-thirds of a vote, say, on that amendment to do the police budget changes, then the, the budget will be as it, as, it, as it was. I mean, your take on, uh, you know, uh, I just had a political panel and, and some people say, well, he doesn't, he doesn't have the, uh, I don't, uh, the moral authority uh, after having resigned uh, and might have some kind of rebellion on council. Do you see that happening? Um, listen, you never know when you go to city council what to expect. Uh, I've learned that over the years. But um, from my perspective, um, this is the mayor's budget. Um, we had, uh, you know, some changes, of course, what happened a couple of days ago, which uh, was very, you know, challenging for, I think, all of us uh, in the city with his announcement. Um, but it is still his budget. He has committed to doing that. Uh, he could have easily resigned and, and, and walked away, but he he did decide that, you know, this is a, an important budget for the city. Uh, we're coming through some very challenging times, and there's been an incredible amount of work done on this. Um, so he will be there tomorrow, and I, and I support him being there because, again, this is something that he primarily, myself, and a lot of other people have worked hard on. This is the most important uh, document uh, of the city that we do every year, and I think to have him there uh, is, is, is very important from my perspective. Okay, there's still a $933 million hole. Um, what can you tell us about uh, that, that the mayor uh, would like to plug uh, with money from the senior levels of government? Can you tell us where that process is at and what, what happens if, if he leaves uh, before that is resolved? Yeah, yeah. So we, what we do, we have a nine hundred and thirty-three million dollar challenge, and that's the that's left over from the challenges we're having with COVID, and it's primarily um, for the uh, shelters and, and the uh, the uh, the uh, TTC fares. So it is sitting there. We we need the other two levels of government to come to the table, as they have in the past number of years, to help support that. Because these are just COVID-related expenses. Um, so the hope is that they do that. In the event that they don't, we're going to have to, um, you know, look at really what we do. We do have what's called a backstop. So we've put money aside. We have like a rainy day fund. These are funds that would otherwise go into our capital, which is fixing roads, fixing uh, community centers and all that. Um, in the event it doesn't come, we'll be fine for one year. But then we will really have to, you know, I guess one of the priorities that the mayor has had um, and we have all had at city council is we need a new fiscal relationship or deal with the other two levels of government. It's quite obvious. And we have seen that through the pandemic with the challenges that this city faces that no others face when you're looking at the refugee problem, when you're looking at homelessness, uh, you know, people come to the city because they want to, you know, have, um, you know, homes and shelter. And we, 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 we take a lot of that burden on from the other GTA municipalities, but we need to be recognized from the other levels of government of those kind of supports that we need. We can't put these kind of um, expenses on a property tax base. Um, other levels of government need to, and they have in the past. I mean, so we recognize the, the, the federal government has recognized uh, and paid us for the challenges of refugees. Problem is, it takes sometimes a year, year and a half to get the money. Right the now, province, just sorry, sorry to interrupt, okay. but 
Where is that process of getting the money from the province and and, and Ottawa? So again, those those con- those uh, conversations are ongoing. The federal government has always come with, I mean, sometimes a little bit late from our perspective, have come with the support for, again, refugees and supportive housing on the provincial government side. What we would really like for them is to recognize that this is an ongoing expense uh, that is primarily their jurisdiction and to, you know, to be able to forward the money on, a, on an ongoing basis so we can plan for that. The challenge is, of course, we have a Right now with refugees, there's a $76 million hole. We know the money's going to be coming. We just don't know when, but, you know, we're kind of waiting. And that's one of the challenges we're, we're facing. And these are the conversations that are so important uh, to be having with those two, other two levels of government once we finish this process. If John Tory is not here to negotiate or to lead those negotiations, who? Is and again, well, again, if he makes the decision, and, and there have been a few of us who are, are encouraging him to, to can you, continue to stay on. But at the end of the day, this is a decision he needs to make what's best for John Tory, what's best for his family. Um, and I will respect whatever way he ends up going. If he's not there at the helm, we will have some challenges as we have in the city. We we will need a mayor who is strong, who has the ability to look at the intergovernmental relationships that are so needed. And, and the work is going to be, you know, an incredible amount of work that'll have to happen. So, you know, we're just going to have to wait and see. Unfortunately, where we are at right now is, is sort of a, a point in history, a point in time that we will have to see where the next 20 and it really be the next 24 to 48 hours once the budget is passed more to see what happens. Uh, I mean, Jennifer McKelvey, I, I am assuming she's extremely competent, but she's n- not that known. I mean, it, will it fall to her? Is there anybody else that you see on council who could take the lead? So it will fall to to Jennifer as the deputy mayor on the interim basis uh, if John does decide to to step down. Uh, there will be a by-election. Um, it's, it, and and the, the details are pretty much within 60 days, 90 days, there will be a by-election. <clears throat> and that'll be, you know, that'll determine who will become mayor. There are a number of people that, you, you know, you're reading in the newspapers and hearing on the radio who are, you know, looking at potentially doing that. But again, I think we have to wait get the budget done, determine where the mayor is going to be going or not going with regard to uh, if he's coming back or not. And then from there, looking at that process. But there will be a number of months where the, you know, potentially where the, there there will be no uh, no captain steering the ship other than, you know, and, and Jennifer's very competent. She's very competent to be able to do that on an interim basis. But I think when you're looking at the long-term challenges of the city, we need a mayor who can, you know, fight long-term for, for what we need. Uh, and, uh, there is, I mean, uh, there is still, I think, possibly, uh, under the law, a chance that Doug Ford could step in and change the whole process, right? Well, understanding that, um, we are, we and all municipalities live at the uh, pleasure of the province. And, you know, when you're looking at the strong mayor power, that was a unilateral decision by the, by the, the premier, right or wrongly. Uh, they have that ability. They have what, you know, they, they do in many respects control, um, the strings of, of the city and other cities. And, and we'll have to wait and see what happens. But yes, they do have that ability and power to determine how they want the city managed and run. Anything else you want to tell us about this? We're all worried. Well, listen, I, I'm quite confident. I've been working along with staff on this budget over the last 10 months. It's a good, strong budget under very difficult, challenging times. And um, I'm positive 
that I've been doing this for nine years, Libby, and we always have challenges before us. We always overcome them as a council and as a city, and I'm confident we'll figure out a way to do that. There is some uncertainty. I no doubt there's some uncertainty right now, but I'm confident that, you know, city council will come together. I was here 10 years ago, 12 years ago, when we had the challenges uh, with that mayor. We overcame those challenges and we moved on, and I'm confident that we will be able to do the same here. Okay, Gary Crawford, thanks so much. Thank you very much, Libby. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm going to take a couple of very quick calls uh, before we go to break. Jim in Toronto. Hi, Jim. Hey, hi, Libby. Go ahead. You're on the air. The thing I don't understand is, uh, you know, the uh, John Tory, <clears throat> I'll try to surround it around the budget because you were talking about the budget. My original comment was going to be just in general, but, you know. We need a quick comment, Jim. Yeah, sorry. So, I mean, it, who who says he's going to resign and doesn't resign? Again, an affair is an abuse of power. And it's the same with this. You say you resign and then you don't go. Again, it's entitlement. It's abuse of power. He's got too big for his britches. And we need somebody that's not sort of has the mentality of celebrity. We need somebody that's going to do the work and isn't all puffed up and pompous on his job. Just okay. like that's why Tory and uh, Doug Ford work together. Okay. They're both the same. They're be- Thanks for your call. Let's take Susan in Toronto. Hi, Susan. Very quickly, Hi. please. Uh, quick uh, comment. I don't think he should have had to resign. I think it's ridiculous enough. My comment. Bye. Okay. Thank you for that. Okay. We're taking a quick break. And when we come back, we are switching gears and we're going to talk about a very serious problem that the nonprofit long-term care homes are facing. They're saying they are being gouged by private staffing agencies, which are eating up more and more of their budgets as they face a labor shortage when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Throughout the pandemic, we've heard from long-term care homes about their increasing dependence on temporary staffing agencies to cover their labor shortages. We've heard that nurses and PSWs who work for those agencies make more money and have more flexibility. And now the organization that represents nonprofit nursing homes has put some numbers behind these complaints. In total, the 100 homes surveyed are spending $6 million a month on temporary staff. What do you think? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And now let's go to Lisa Levin, CEO of Advantage Ontario. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Libby. Nice to speak to you again. Uh, nice to speak to you again. So you did a survey to get a sense of just how big this problem is, right? Correct. We were hearing increasingly from our members um, during the pandemic that the prices for temporary staffing have gone higher and higher and higher. And this isn't every uh, temporary agency, but some of them are really exploiting the health human resource crisis that's out there and charging exorbitant fees. And this is really impacting the quality of care in the homes and the the budget of the homes. Um, I I was a little surprised when I saw the numbers you put forward uh, for the pay. So uh, you're saying that the typical wage for a nurse is 43 bucks an hour. I I would have thought it would have been more than that, actually. 
Well, um, you know, that's the average pay. Uh, it's higher in some homes and lower in other homes. And wages in general in long-term care are lower than they are in hospitals because the government doesn't provide as much funding for staff in long-term care as they do in hospitals. And that's a whole other issue related to this onto itself. Um, and we've been asking the government to equalize things. Because if you're a nurse working in long-term care, why should you get paid less than a nurse working in a hospital if you're not, you know, if you don't have some subspecialty or whatever? If you're just a regular nurse taking care of people, you should make the same amount no matter what setting you're in. Okay. And the, a nurse in a hospital would make what? What? I actually don't yeah. have that information off the top of yeah. my head, but they do make more money and they have uh, benefits. better benefits. Exactly. And pensions. Now, our municipal members are able to pay higher salaries for nurses and provide those benefits and pensions, but that's because they supplement the funding the province gives through their tax base. Okay, so uh, your average is $43 an hour, and you say that on average um, you you pay twice that to an agency plus fees. Uh, I was, uh, those fees look pretty eye-popping, 35% on top of double. Right. So it ranges according to the agency and where you are in the province. So it's certainly like the average uh, amount that a temporary nurse will make is 96 an hour. But some charge, we have one agency that we found out was charging $150 an hour for the same position. And then on top of that, if you're in the rural, in rural or northern areas, the fees are 30% higher. And then, yes, then there's these service fees that some agencies charge of up to 35% and then premiums for short notice staff of like $100 and it just goes on and on. And it's really not acceptable. Out of this money, uh, whether it's uh, $88 an hour, how much would the, uh, the nurse, the actual person working, get from that? Do you know? That's a really good question. And I don't know that. Presumably, they're getting more than they would in the home. But then, of course, the agency needs to make money. So I don't really know the exact breakdown. And it probably varies from company to company. Um, Some people say, well, you know, that's capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I have no problem with people running a business. And in fact, Temporary staffing agencies are really important in healthcare because of the 24-7 nature of the operation. It's not like a restaurant that you can shorten the hours and say, we don't have staff, we're going to close down. We need to keep homes running. And during the pandemic, I myself reached out to many temporary agencies, and they literally saved lives for me, coming into homes when no one else would. But, but at this point in time, some of these agencies are price gouging and taking advantage of this situation. And it's in impacting the homes financially and it's impacting residents and the, the level of care they receive because homes can't afford to hire as many staff now because they're paying so much for the agencies. Okay. And so what do you think the government uh, could or should do about this? Well, we need accountability and we need immediate action. The government should restrict the hourly rates that the agencies charge The other thing we're hearing is that some agencies are sending in staff with false credentials. They're saying they're nurses, and they're not. And that's that's unsafe, that's unethical, and it needs to be regulated. Ah, and it isn't? I mean, that's fraudulent. Well, people would be, you know, if you're a nurse or if you're a registered nurse, a registered practical nurse, or any other kind of regulated health professional, you have a college. Um, But there's no regulation of the actual agencies themselves. 
And I know that the government is looking at some type of regulations for agencies across like the entire, like all sectors, not just healthcare, but they're not looking at credentialing and they're not looking at pricing. Hmm. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting. Uh, this is, uh, my experience a long time ago, 15 years ago, uh, after uh, a very complicated surgery, uh, we hired some private care and it was kind of the same deal. They'd send somebody and they'd say, Oh, this person was a nurse wherever. And there was no mm-hmm. way that person was a nurse wherever and mm-hmm. all, all kinds of other little, you know, fudgeramas. <laughs> Right. Well, you know, just because someone is a nurse in another country, they still have to get their license here. And, um, I mean, that's a whole other topic uh, and the need to accelerate that, which the government has been working on. But really, we're dealing with the, some of the most vulnerable people in society. And we we need to make sure that people with the right qualifications are coming in. And we're also hearing that some of these agencies are getting quite aggressive and they're poaching staff from homes directly, like they're waiting in parking lots for staff to come out and they're saying, hey, do you want to make more money and work more flexible hours? Uh, Well, yeah, except uh, presumably they don't. I mean, it has to be, I would think, quite a lot more money because they wouldn't get benefits. Well, it obviously is uh, attractive enough because that's what's exacerbated the situation and has, um, you know, made it, it has made the turnover in homes worse. People are leaving to go to these agencies. And I mean, I I don't think there's anything that you can do with that as, aside from uh, making sure that you know who's in your parking lot. Uh, <laughs> well, I think the government actually could put in place legislation that would do something to prevent agencies from poaching. All part of regulating agencies. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And and capping the rates as well. Uh, have you? Yeah. I mean, this is your pre-budget submission. Uh, has this been broached with the long-term care minister or with his staff already? Yes, we shared the results of the survey. I mean, we first told them the anecdotal information, and now we have the numbers behind it, and they are concerned. Um, but this is a interministerial issue, meaning that agencies in healthcare also work in home care and also work in hospitals, and that's under the purview of the Minister of Long-Term Care. And once you get anything that goes beyond more than one ministry, then there's a lot more politics that go on, and it's a lot harder to get change. Mm-hmm. Well, and I know, uh, again, just this is uh, from my experience in, with, with home care. And again, like, uh, you know, got rid of one agency and, and hired one that was, you know, a lot more honest and better. But um, those rates, I think, w- are different when it comes to home care, right? In home care, um, I don't have the information. I know that home care staff get even less money from government than long-term care get. And once again, why is that? And how is that acceptable? And so they have also had really tough, uh, tough time finding staff in home care, but I don't know how much they're depending on temporary staff or not. I, I don't, in the past, it wasn't as common a thing, uh, but now perhaps they're using them. I really don't know. I've also heard anecdotally that there are a lot more of these agencies cropping up now that it, it looks like a good business. Yep. Yeah, they are. They're popping up all over the place. And so we we need to take a look at this and see what we can do. And the other implication of having such high rates for staff is, firstly, you have less continuity of care. The person who's caring for the seniors in the home are, by nature, temporary staff. So they don't know their needs and and they don't know their care plans as, as well. 
and they just don't know them. And it's, it's hard for people to come in and just, you know, start taking care of some people who may not be verbal, who have very specific requirements, very specific needs. And, and it just makes it a lot harder to provide good care. And the other thing is, we were really excited when the government announced uh, they would finally increase to four hours of care per person per day on average across the province. And now that's going to be in jeopardy at a provincial level because many homes will not be able to meet those targets because they're spending so much for individual staff. Is it possible that the answer is on the other side of the ledger. I mean, basically, if you pay nurses more, I mean, that this uh, Bill 124, which is expiring very soon, and capped their wages, I mean, if if nurses were paid more, then there, you know, wouldn't that be the way to, uh, to take care of uh, the incentive of going this route? I think there's a number of things that could be done, and I want to clarify that it's not just nurses, it's PSWs, and it's all kinds of staff in the homes that are impacted by this. And yes, Build 124 has had a huge impact on non-for-profit long-term care homes. For some strange reason, the for-profit homes have been exempted from Bill 124, and so have the municipal homes. So the not-for-profit homes have had a harder time than any other home, and they're at a huge disadvantage. So they've had to rely more on agency staff, but certainly... We've been asking and calling on the government for a few years now to increase wages of all staff in healthcare and equalize the wages so that you don't have nurses and PSWs going off to a hospital only because they can make more money. Hmm. Uh, uh, I didn't realize that Bill 124 didn't apply to for-profit homes. How did that happen? I cannot answer that question, Libby. <laughs> You'll have to ask the government. It's a good question. So uh, yes. where are we at with all of this? So where we're at is we need immediate action. This is not a good situation. Uh, it, it's harmful to residents. It's not good for the homes. It's not good for anyone. And we need the government to address it immediately and put restrictions on these hourly agency rates and hold agencies accountable so that they can't. Uh, poach staff, they can't send people in without the right credentials, and that they can't uh, price gouge. And uh, anything else that you would like to see come out of this? Well, we need a comprehensive health human resources strategy that looks at the entire healthcare system. The government has done a lot during the pandemic. They've raised wages of PSWs, which is amazing, but then that's impacted registered nurses, practical nurses who didn't get a raise. So you can't just tinker with one part and not have it impact the others. So we need a comprehensive strategy to look at how we can recruit and retain staff in this important sector. Okay. Lisa Levin, thank you so much for that. You're welcome, Libby. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. Well, uh, and uh, tomorrow we're going to have our medical panel and uh, we're going to deal with something that we didn't get to with our recovering politicians. And that is that uh, all the provinces are going to take the money from Ottawa for the new health care deal. We'll talk about what that means, among many other things. And uh, uh Budget is starting to be uh, debated at City Hall, so the John Tory saga continues. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. 
Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.